The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free, straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. The views, memories, and opinions of the interviewee on this podcast are their own. They do not represent the policy, views, or official position of the Social Security Administration, the United States Army Trial Judiciary, or any previous employer. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking with Joe Marcy. How are you doing today, Joe? Great, Joe. Thanks for having me. So first question, why West Point? I think I'm going to give a longer answer than most people are going to want to hear. It started with my older brother. He was, I think, in the last batch of youth that got the option to join the army or go to jail. And so he went from, he's about seven years older than I am. And he went from being a knucklehead to showing up with his mind on straight, ready to go to college and didn't really resemble the knucklehead that I knew growing up. I then saw a West Point kid, Casey Thomas, give a speech at University of Texas, El Paso. He was a sophomore and held the ring with 75 high schoolers and their parents in there. I thought, wow, that's really cool what this dude can do. And then probably most importantly, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a bartender and college was only going to happen if I figured out a way to pay for it myself. And the combination of what it did for my brother, the opportunity to be like Casey Thomas and a free ride had me signed up. Now, when did you make that decision? Was that early on in high school? Was that middle school? Yeah, I was, I made that decision freshman, sophomore year. I remember I got the little flyer that says, these are all the things the class of whatever did. And I think definitely sophomore year, I made it my uh, life's mission to check off as many of those blocks as possible so that I was competitive. What was your biggest concern for building out that packet? My, my biggest concern is growing up in El Paso, Texas, and not a very rigorous kind of academic high school experience and the leadership stuff and being able to check the sports stuff and the different organizations that was, I was fine with that. I was really worried about, am I going to be able to compete with people from across the country at this awesome higher learning level institution. Did you struggle to get the packet turned in and that congressional nomination or to compete? Or did you, once you started the process, did it feel like you had a pretty good lead on it? Uh, Colonel retired Buster Hayden who graduated in, in one of the 
like off year classes during World War II helped so many of us from that area get into West Point. He was a great mentor and he probably put hundreds of kids in the academy from El Paso and New Mexico. And so he did a great job of kind of holding my hand through that whole process. I applied early. I got accepted early. I remember going to meet with the congressman for the nomination letter and I met with his aide for an hour. I thought I crushed the interview. At the end of it, she goes, so what are you doing to get in to help your chance of getting into West Point? I said, I've already got into West Point. I just need the nomination. And she was very nice about it, but I could tell she was very annoyed. And it basically boiled down to, if you just told me that at the start, we could have <laughs> cut this entire thing short. I was a young kid. I didn't, I didn't know any better. Walking into West Point on our day, what was that like for you? pretty overwhelming and it's been a theme that I'm my own worst enemy and I make things harder on myself. And so I remember we got to the point where, you know, you report to the cadet in the red sash and you go up to one of the floors and they had that little like poster with your thing that you're supposed to memorize reporting to the first sergeant, I think it was. And for the life of me, I didn't look straight ahead and I tried to report to the first sergeant three or four times just based off of what I could hear coming from the room and then making improvements based off what he was yelling at them when they messed up. And then my third or fourth time I look up and it's right there, like dead in front of me. And I was like, oh, come on, Joe. And just making things harder on myself and just being overwhelmed. A kid from El Paso, high school was 200 kids and you walk into this big machine and it, it's just overwhelming. Now, was the rest of Beast like that? No, I think I, I got into a little bit of a routine, had a good squad. And the only real hiccup I had through Beast is I have a sleepwalking problem. And in the second half of Beast, it's 1045 at night. I can remember the time exactly because I was in my shorts, no shoes, no shirt, just wandering down the hallway and somebody starts yelling at me and I come to enough to realize what's going on and they go, do you know what time it is? And I just happen to be right across from one of the clocks. So that's 1045. I didn't say sir or anything. So yeah, it's 1045. And Ian Fishback was my roommate. And I was right in front of our room and his name was above my name. And they go, is your name Fishback? And no, I'm the other one. Again, no, sir. And so I, they go, go back to bed. So I go back to bed. Ian has woken up and is literally like shaking with, he has no idea what's going on. Somebody's yelling Fishback. I think I took about a week of ribbing and other punishment for my lack of the use of sir, not for being out of uniform, not for being out of my room, but for the lack of sir is what they latched onto and, and gave me a hard time about. Did that come up as an issue later on in service or later on at West Point? No, it's never happened. I don't really know when it happens. We went on a vacation a couple of years ago and we were staying in a travel lodge motel in San Francisco because it had a room with three beds and I've got four kids. And so it was the most economical way to stay in San Francisco. And I walked out of the room, was walking around the complex. And at some point my wife realized I was missing and again, came and found me basically walking around the motel in the middle of the night in, in shorts. But that's the only other documented time it's caused me issues. Holy crap. Yeah, that would scare the crap out of me. Yeah. The transition from, from beast to the academic year, was it easier or harder for you? It was so incredibly hard for me and I was so thankful for how they did it. And so again, I, I think I was really behind the power curve in terms of the level of academics that was expected. And I don't remember if we shuffled six weeks in or a month in or something like that, but I think when we shuffled classes, I was failing everything, but one class. And that was probably a C and the shuffle was great. Cause it gave me 
remember I had a chemistry professor who would call on me, make us take boards and call on me every time we took boards because my answer was so awful that he was just literally making fun of me every time I went to chemistry class. And so getting new professors, getting a fresh start and really figuring out, okay, this isn't high school. This is, you gotta go to the library. You gotta do these things. And so I was able to bounce back, but I, I really credit them for doing the shuffle because it really made a difference for me. The other thing that, that really stands out from that first semester is when I would go to the mess hall, I would just be bothered every time I went to the mess hall, not as much in beast, but during the academic year, when you have the entire core there, like for a month, maybe two months, every time I was just like, there's just something wrong here. And it finally, it dawned on me one day and I looked around and I was like, I've never been around this many white people in my life. My high school class, there was eight white people and majority Hispanic. And, and that was just what I knew. And we didn't travel a whole lot when I was a kid. So just like the demographic change, it was eye opening for me. Oh, that's what's so different. I'm just not used to this type of setting. What? What helped you calm down and, and get your groove? You talked about the, the, the shuffle you talked about. Was that what it was? Is it a, a change of instructors, a change of study habits? Was it peers coaching you through what's working for them? Yeah, and it was definitely my, my, my roommates seeing their approach. And the great thing about going to school at West Point is if you want help, people will give you help. It, it wasn't like that when I went to law school necessarily. And whether it's everybody coming together and I remember this isn't beast, but we had the entire yuck H2 yuck company in my room, Mark McNamara's room and Andrew Gash's room studying for the physics exam and had the really smart guys helping us all get through physics. And we trashed our room. We were on the sixth floor. And there's pizza boxes, literally at the end of the night, we just grabbed the big push broom and pushed like all the empty food containers into a corner. And I'd had the misfortune of being the first one from that room, walking back to the classroom and the regional tech had my tactical officer and NCO tech locked up in our room, just screaming. And he heard my footsteps. Cause again, I'm my own worst enemy and I didn't. Uh, immediately stop and, and run the other way. So I get in there and he is just going off on me and we've got the dry erase all over the, the cabinets and the mirrors, like every available service to write on is covered in physics. And he's in my face yelling, there's spittle flying at me. And he goes, what is this? <laughs> and I just answer, honestly, sir, it's physics. Hey, he, that was the wrong. And my tack was so cool because he storms off right after that. And he looks at me, and goes, Joe, do I need to say a single word? I was like, no, sir. And then, so the whole company comes together to get us through physics. And then everybody trickles back from the exam. And next thing you know, we got 20, 30 people in our room, basically getting ready for Sammy in the middle of finals. Just incredible. Yeah. What other moments? Do you remember most about West Point? Just all the opportunities, the, sure, my summer, I did three week internship at the Supreme Court working in the clerk's office. That was an incredible experience. The, I joined the German club because I was dating a girl in DC and I researched the, what clubs go to DC the most and the German club for whatever reason was one of those. So I was able to go down there as a sophomore or a yuck and a plebe a lot, joining various clubs, whitewater kayaking, and just all the experiences like that combined with going home with people and meeting their families and doing things with my friends, that, that really stands out more than any sort of 
just the rote West Point stuff. I'll say, I think I have a seasonal affective disorder. So that December through March timeframe when everything's gray, those were always hard times for me. But again, going home to Baltimore with Brett Lanier over a long weekend, that's a, that's the type of stuff that kept you moving forward. Can you tell me about that experience at the Springport a little bit more? Yeah, it was really cool. It's the clerk's office. So they're responsible for taking in all the briefs, distributing them to the justices. When the opinions come out, distributing those. I was there at the end of the term. So I was there. There was a big, I want to say it was an affirmative action and college case that was issued. I got to sit in as the justices read the opinion. It was myself and six other interns. They were all female interns. So it was a good summer for lots of reasons. The, the best part about the experience was the, they had an end of year party that the interns were invited to. So it's all the Supreme court justices and chief judge Rehquist used to do old favorites with the chief justice. And so I, I, in my office, I still have this pamphlet of old camp song songs and somebody would play the piano and we'd sing minor 49er and all these songs as you're drinking wine and drinking beer with Justice Scalia, talking to him about his son who was in the army at the time. So it was just a surreal experience for a 21 year old kid from El Paso. And I like to say. I played in the highest court in the land. Uh, they have a basketball court that's above the Supreme Court and there's a weekly, it's mainly law clerks, but they would let the summer interns play with them. So there was a couple pickup games twice a week above the Supreme Court in the gym. Th those types of experiences, you don't get those other places. And I just applied through the law department and they paid for me to live there for three weeks. It was awesome. Now, your major and that experience, did that solidify where you thought you wanted to go later on in life? Yeah, it did. And uh, I, they tell you when you're going to pick a branch, look to the officers that you like and you gravitate toward. And so the, the two officers I really enjoyed were the armor officers and even more so than the army officers, I really enjoyed the JAG officers. So I think it was our sophomore year, they offered a major in the American uh, legal system for the first time before you could only get a minor. And so when they did that, I made the, the switch to the American legal system from poli-sci. Uh, that was probably a mistake. Um, in my poli-sci courses, it was, it was generally possible to get an A in my law courses. They were very generous with a B minus, but to get an A, it seemed like it took an act of Congress to get them to give you the A. So I always regretted for GPA purposes, making the switch, but I'll never forget. I'll never regret making the switch, getting to work with General Finnegan, who later became the Dean. He wrote me a, ref a reference for the funded legal education program. And just getting to work hand in hand with the JAG officers, one of whom later became a mentor as a JAG down the road, it just great people. And I loved working with them. To talk me through bridge choice and graduation, because you can't leave West Point as a JAG. Yeah, I knew, I, I think I knew pretty early on, probably sophomore, junior year of high school. I wanted to be a lawyer again, following the theme of, I couldn't really afford paying for college on, on my own and having seen how awesome that is having the army pay for law school seemed like a, a good idea as well. So I, I knew I was gonna, I wanted to go be a JAG eventually. And I knew there was a path to do that. I also absolutely loved riding in the, in and around a tank at Fort Knox. Like I said, I really 
respected and, and liked most, if not all the armor officers I had as instructors and the, I wish I could remember his name, but the tack who said, Joe, do I need to say anything? And did not give me the butt chewing that I deserved. <laughs> he was an armor officer and just the way he carried himself and he handled his business, I, I really respected. And so I, I think I knew I was going to be armor from our, our yuck year, probably. To talk me through what was graduation like for you and for your family? You know, it's just a time of excitement, right? You have, you've done this thing, you get to go get trained to, to do another thing and you get to go put everything into action. I really considered leaving West Point my sophomore year. My grandmother was a, a Navy brat and then married to a Naval officer and the amount of pride she had and the fact that I was at West Point literally is the reason I didn't submit my application to the University of Texas as a sophomore. And I remember at graduation going, it was all worth it. My family's up there. My grandmother's there and just embarking on this journey and 60 days of amazing second lieutenant pay for doing nothing. It was a nice start to, to the career. 9-11 and officer basic court. Learning how to assemble and dis disassemble the 50 cal at Fort Knox. They bring in the TV. Of course, we all see everything that happens. I remember I lived on the other side of the highway from Fort Knox, and it used to take two minutes to get to the OBC classrooms. And then that next day, they have the Humvees with the 50 cal mounted and all the security and it just, oh, my, my future has just changed. And I married an O2 grad and talking with her about all of the changes that were happening at the academy and just an overwhelming time and the uncertainty of, okay, what happens next? Where was your first duty station after an uh, officer base course? Uh, Fort Hood, Texas. Fort Hood. Now Fort Cavazos. Was that intentional that you were trying to get back to your home state? I recently started a new job and, and one of the icebreaker questions was tell me something funny. I was like, I joined the army in part because I always wanted to be stationed in Germany. Not only have I never been stationed in Germany. Uh, I've never even been to Germany and that's entirely on me. So my wife wanted to be a doctor. So she, our plan was she was going to apply to UTSA med school in San Antonio. I would choose Fort hood. Cause that was the, those two places were the best combination of a good medical school and a place with armor and tanks that I could do something meaningful. And so I picked, Germany was still on the board. Hawaii was still on the board. I want to say somehow there was like an Alaska slaughter two still on the board when we, when we picked locations and I said Fort Hood and I think the entire room, uh, started clapping, uh, for me for taking a hood slot as opposed to one of the other ones. So you show up the Fort Hood. Would you, what did you walk in as a tank platoon leader, scout platoon leader? What did you do? I, I don't know if I've, if I've heard a curse word in, in the podcast I've, I've listened to, but it was a complete and utter we shit had, show. We had one. Yeah. You're the second one that's going to have the explicit rating now. There you go. And you can cut it out. <laughs> Feel free to cut it out. I show up. I thought I was going to be in first calves. They placed me in fourth ID and then they put myself and a couple other of our classmates in an infantry Battalion, one, two, two infantry. I'm a tank platoon leader. We don't necessarily get along the best with the infantry guys and say, okay, you're going to alpha company one, two, two, and you're going to an NTC rotation in three weeks and you're taking Bradley's. Okay. And I walked into a situation I wouldn't wish on anybody. The platoon sergeant had been the platoon leader 
for eight or nine months and was stoked to be going to NTC without an LT until I show up. And we did not see eye to eye on anything. I knew things were bad when we did my gunnery. We complete gunnery. I don't know anything about a Bradley and we qualify. I've got a good gunner or, or so I think. And then two hours later, my, I don't think it's called, I don't think we have a loader. I think it was my driver came and got me. Sir, we have an issue. Okay. I've been at Fort Hood for three days. What do you want me to solve here? And we had left 25 mics in the Bradley and they're like, we've left the range. We've driven around posts. Like, what are we going to do? I'm like, is there an amnesty box here? Cause we're going to, we're going to stay until 1800 or 1830. We're going to drop this shit in the amnesty box. I did it again. The uh, 25 millimeter is the size of a hand grenade. It's not bigger. Yep. And was this in boxes or was it still in the gun in the feed tray? It was still, I, I don't think it was, I think we, they had taken was it, it out of the feed tray. Way? It was still okay. linked, but it wasn't in a box, but my mind was blown. And so that just set the tone. We show up at NTC, we're doing pre-combat checks and I go, Hey, why don't you check my Bradley? I'll check your Bradley. And he's like, you're going to check my Bradley. I was like, yeah, I'm going to check your Bradley. So why are you going to check my Bradley? I was like, you're going to check my Bradley. Everybody's Bradley is going to get checked. And that was an issue. The very first assignment, the very first mission, we got assigned to go support another unit. And he was like, oh, I was, I was a, a observer controller out here. However many years ago, I know exactly where that is. And we had the old. FB CB2, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, it was that, that 1980 Nintendo looking GPS thing. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm looking at the map and I'm looking at the direction he's going and we're going the wrong way. And so it's a couple clicks in, Hey, red four, you think you're going, I think we're going the right. No, no, I know. Okay. So I, I think I let him take us about 10 clicks off before like, I got this, you're wrong. And he was so bad, but. The last two missions, the, the OCs guys killed him at the start of each mission and we had decent success as opposed to terrible failure and then got back from the rotation and a month later, six weeks later, he got relieved. And then six weeks later, I got a fresh start in an armor battalion. And I will say from a leadership standpoint, that was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because basically everything that could have gone wrong, went wrong with that. And then I went from this very subpar egotistical platoon sergeant to this professional soldier, great mentor, great leader, truly cares about people, truly cared about me and try to make me the best version of myself, both as a platoon leader and as a person. And just the contrast in those two experiences in such a short time was really meaningful and, and impactful, I think, in, in my development. That, that transition puts you about six months out from the beginning of the ground war in, in March of 2003. Is that about right? Somewhere around October, November, you're coming over that tank? A, a little bit before then, but yeah. And we got noticed. Probably late September, early October, funny aside, I was always very upfront with everybody that I wanted to be a flap. So we had, I told the first armor battalion commander, and I think I got there right before the summer P PCS. So I met with the commander, told him I was interested in the flap program. He's like, great, but I leave in like a month. So the new guy shows up and I have a office visit with him and I say, I'm interested in being a, a JAG is why are you here? And I was like, because I couldn't go JAG out of school. And he's like, I don't understand why you're here. And so he did not think much of me because I was just the guy that was marking time before I could be a JAG. So we get notice in like September, October, we're going to be the first unit from 4ID to go out for the invasion. And every time he sees me, he's Joe. We're going to war. Are you up to it? Joe, you sure you can do it? I just sparked a, a fire 
to prove myself to this guy. But so when we finally get notice, they tell us we're probably leaving in December. My wife's uh, is at university of San Antonio at med school. We decide we're going to do the justice of the peace thing because I want her to be the one and she wants to be the one and in about so we decide that I go to the field for three weeks. I remember taking my flip cell phone every night and walking up to the highest hill to get a signal, checking with her and it's okay. I told our parents they're coming down and then I go up the next night. So my aunts and uncles are coming down and at least some of your aunts and uncles are coming down. And then over the course of several days, we go from our parents to there's going to be 50 people for a JP thing that I thought we were keeping to ourselves. And my wife, the amazing person that she is organized a wedding in three weeks time. And for the majority of that three weeks, uh, I think I came out of the field one weekend and then I came out of the field Thursday night and got married, uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, so I, that's the way to get married. I, I will stand by it. It's probably not the right reason to get married and, and probably the wrong age to get married at, but in terms of a, a marriage that is as painless as possible for the, the non-planner of it, that was the way to do it. Talk me through the deployment. So I think the, probably the most stressful part was the waiting. So, you know, we told we're going to be part of the. Uh, initial invasion and we told November, December, then it's December, January, then it's February, then it's March. And I'm, I'm newly married. I'm going down to San Antonio every weekend. I don't have staff duty. She's coming up the weekends. I have staff duty and you know, every weekend is, is like, uh, uh, savor every moment. I may never see you again type of, of thing, even though she was there to see me off when, when I finally did go. Uh, but that was probably really the most stressful part other than getting shot at. The deployment was interesting because just like we were always told we were about to deploy, we were constantly told we were coming home. We get there, the first month goes by and the battalion commander starts saying, okay, you'll be home in August at the latest. And then it's okay. It's going to be October. And then August rolls around and they're like, okay, it's not going to be October, but it's going to be December. But it never felt like I had that full year to count down. I was always counting down and then disappointed. They go, like, oh, it's two more months. It's fine. So from that standpoint. That was one piece of it. The deployment was interesting. It was, I was a platoon leader and then a couple months in, I spent three months as an LNO. That was cool because I got to go to brigade staff. I hung out with the JAG officer, got to follow her around a little bit, made friends with the aviation LNO. And when I was an XO down the road, he was my support most nights when I was running missions. And so that was uh, pretty cool. I was really thankful because I knew I was never going to get to be a company commander. I got to be an XO of a line company. My commander was an idiot in garrison, but a savant in war. He just by way of example in Korea, his, they parked on like a side of a hill. They didn't put the brakes on his M1 and it rolled down and crashed a water buffalo. Thankfully, didn't kill anybody. Prior to taking company command, he was the assistant brigade of S4 for our brigade. And his job was, his, he said, my main job was to make sure we had fried chicken for the Thursday staff meeting. And they gave him a government credit card. And so he d decided, oh, that must mean I'm supposed to buy fried chicken with this government credit card. And so for nine months, he bought hundreds of dollars of fried chicken every week for the staff and nobody let him know that he's supposed to be collecting money. So he ended up getting a flipple for thousands of dollars in fried chicken. And so that's who this guy was in garrison. And 
I would go toe to toe with him as the XO. And so would the first sergeant like, sir, you're saying we can do too much. Sure. You got to push back. You got to tell the old man. No, he's like, Joe, we can do this. And he was right every time. And he was just great at leading in Iraq. And because of that, the same battalion commander that worried about whether or not Joe, the JAG could be an armor officer ended up plussing us up to where we basically had two full companies and left one other company for perimeter security and one other to do security on supply runs. So we did all the combat operations for the last 90 to 120 days in our Iraq. And I basically got to be a company commander because I handled the night missions and the CEO handled the day missions. And that was a super rewarding experience because I was never going to get a, a true company command. And that's the closest I got to it. And it was just an incredible experience. One quick question. Did that company commander ever become a GO? He did not. As soon as we got back to, I don't even think he may not have made Lieutenant Colonel. As soon as we got back to Garrison, he, he retreated to his old ways. And so Fort Cavazos then hood is about an hour and 15 minutes if you're driving by the seat of your pants. And he had his favorite bar in North Austin. And at least once a week, if not twice a week, I'd get a phone call sometime between 5.15 and 6.15 in the morning be like, hey, Joe, I'm not going to make PT today. The old man shows up, cover for me. Got you, sir. So I, he was great in theater, not so great out of theater. Talk me through redeployment and returning back to the United States. What was next for you? So that was, uh, that was really unique for me in that I had, I got accepted into the FLEP program, the funded legal education program. So I was going to go to law school. And so I was starting, we redeployed, I want to say April of 04. And I started law school in August of 04. So we redeploy, everybody goes on leaves. I don't take leave because I'm about to go to law school. So I, I basically have an easy month or six weeks when nobody's around and I'm one of a handful of people hanging out with the rear D people. And then I take my leaves before law school starts. And I went to University of Texas at Austin Law School. It's a good law school. I have a theory on law schools that the better the law school, the easier it actually is because at the end of the day, they care about their bar passage rates more than anything else. So if you have good test scores, they're less worried about you failing the bar and more worried about teaching you what you need to be an actual attorney, as opposed to you go to a, a tier three law school, they're going to haze you pretty hard because they want to make sure you can pass the bar. I go to a good law school that was amazing, but I go there, I'm a, a first lieutenant in November of that year, I pin on captain. So I'm making captain pay to go to law school. They're paying for law school. They're paying for me to live in Austin and nobody is shooting at me in law school. So I've come from an environment where people are actively shooting at me and nobody's shooting at me. And as long as I don't mess up this great gig, I have a job. So it's like the best of all worlds. And so I made up for the West Point experience. I joined, there was a graduate rugby team at UT, uh, I found my brothers from another mother on that team. We got a guy from that team as an astronaut for Denmark, for the European Space Agency. There's petroleum engineers, chemical engineers, MBA students, and we all came together. And I buckled down a few weeks at the end of the, each semester and got through law school, but I also had a lot of fun at law school, making up for the West Point experience. Now, did you return back to Fort Hood, Cavazos after you graduated? Where did you go? Obviously, there's so some sort of like introductory course for JAG, but this is how the Army does it. You have your, your technical, your degree, but this is how Army does. It's exactly right. So another boondoggle spent three months in Charlottesville, Virginia. The Army's JAG school is co-located co with the University of Virginia Law School. Beautiful campus, beautiful place to be. 
And so three months learning how to be an army lawyer. So that's my second OBC. And then from there, I go to uh, Fort Carson, where I was a legal assistance attorney for uh, 15 months. Legal assistance is wills and various help to your soldiers and their families. I can sum up the non-will part of legal assistance. A typical client would come in and I, they'd tell me their problem. I would ask, well, have you talked to the person or entity named to your problem? And they would say no. Uh, and then I would either call them or send a letter or send an email and invariably 95% of the time that, that fixed whatever the problem was. Uh, so it was not a very challenging or rewarding job. And then after 15 months, I, I spent a year as a prosecutor, uh, and, you know, kind of advisor to commanders at Carson. And so in the captain role, just for the, the larger audience, there's a major and one to two captains inside of a brigade of about 5,000 or so soldiers that advise and support the rest of that, that rest of that brigade on actions that require UCMJ. And so back in 09, when I did this, they were just starting that field model. So I didn't actually work that way. Uh, so I was the, I was the trial counsel and basically res responsible for myself and my paralegals are responsible for separations, article 15s, court marshals, any sort of like adverse action for a brigade, a battalion. I had, had the dentist unit. I had all the little units. And so we would support all of that function, but that's when I started to do actual trial work and, and trying cases. What was that experience like, especially as the war in Iraq is ramping up, Afghanistan is ramping up, and then you have people with multiple deployments in their belts. What sort of things were you dealing with the most? So I was only a, a prosecutor for a year and I, I didn't have, I didn't have the combat brigade. So the combat brigades had the setup you were talking about. So there was a different attorney assigned to those brigades. I, there was various deployments throughout the units I had, but it wasn't really until the following year I transitioned. I went, I came back to Fort Hood and I became a defense counsel. And that's really where my eyes got opened to frankly, how we were using these soldiers and just setting them aside. And it wasn't uncommon in 2010, 2011, I'd have a soldier come to me in my office. He's getting court-martialed for going AWOL and then testing positive for drugs when he came back. And the prosecutor on the other side was like, hey, Joe, we'll give him an other than honorable discharge. I'm thinking to myself, you don't, you just don't get it. It's, you think we're just going to give him another than honorable discharge and, and move on down the road. This is a guy that spent 12 months in Afghanistan. And then just over a year later, spent 15 months in Iraq and he experienced all the things that I experienced on a much lesser level in 05. And we had incidents in 05, but we didn't have anything like what happened in 07 and later and the true horrific fighting and, and constantly being on guard and the really bad PTSD. And they're just, I, I think maybe eventually we got it, but when I was in the trenches as the first line of defense, as a defense counsel for soldiers, I, it just was so disheartening because you want to prosecute murder makes sense. You want to prosecute sexual assault. We got to stamp that. We got to get rid of it. We got to do everything we can, but where we can draw distinct correlation between the misconduct and what we did to the soldier and just to say, Hey, Joe, I'll give him if he submits for an other than honorable discharge, we'll drop the charges. And you're like, that can't be the right answer. The, and I'm, I'm going to be very annoyed that I'm going to get this wrong. There's the, there's a movie about the Boer War. You know what, what I'm talking about? Probably not. Uh, 
Yeah. And long story short, they, they end up prosecuting soldiers for war crimes and the defense counsel, who's just like a regular officer and tasked with the, defending these people. So something to the effect is war isn't about bad people doing bad things. War is normal people being put into a situation where bad things happen. And I butchered the quote completely, but it, it always stuck out to me that, man, we need to do a better job of supporting those people that we put as our first line of defense. It's really hard sometimes to separate the actions of an individual and the intent. And sometimes you're only able to observe the actions and not what led to the intent and everything that led up to that action. And for the context for that chain of command at that time is, man, they're on that treadmill of that three-year turn. Every, every three years, they have a one-year deployment. They have a one-year recovery. They have a one-year train up and then they're back on. And a lot of different things came up in that period. And that's why we started getting those warrior transition units to separate these soldiers who have a true medical need or a true medical issue and to make sure that they didn't accidentally get caught in that churn. And so I, I helped stand up the first warrior transition battalion at Fort Carson. And I, I recognize I was never a company commander. I understand you got a slot. You need to get another soldier in that slot. Um, my problem was I have access as a defense counsel to forensic psychologists. I've got access to other experts. I've got tools to where I can make this argument. The problem is that doesn't help you as the commander when I'm trying to drag out a trial for six months so I can get what I think is a just result for my soldier. And you're trying to get another driver for your tank in your formation. And I just felt like it was such, it, I, I don't mind the company commander making the recommendation for general court martial the brigade commander making the recommendation. Where I have the problem is when, and I'm probably overly sensitive to this, when a captain prosecutor comes to me, has never deployed, basically has no life experience because most of our attorneys go, you know, ROTC and then defer to go to law school and then come in or the direct commissionees straight from law school but they never held another job. Few of them have been prosecutors in the civilian world, so they don't have the life experience. And so I recognize the, the command piece. I was always frustrated with the JAG piece of, hey, let's just move this as quick as possible, as opposed to what can we do to both punish the shoulder, soldier for his actions, rectify the actions, and take into account his service in a way that's not gonna mess him up for the rest of his life. Or just get it right. If, if anything, as my career pr progressed, is I just want to get things right. And and I felt when I was a defense counsel, especially for those years, because we were burning through um adverse actions and court martial soldiers. I, I think one I think both of those years. I had 50 separations in lieu of court-martial. And if you told that to somebody today, they don't, they probably are lucky to see 10 in a year. And I was just churning them out because that was what was in the best interest of the soldier, given the, the climate. Me through the tail end of your time at Fort Hood. So it was, Fort Hood was great because it was a crucible. It either goes from being the first or second busiest court-martial jurisdiction in the army with Fort Liberty. We were supposed to have 10 defense counsel. At one point we were down to four defense counsel and that's for all the soldiers at Fort Hood. So that's fourth ID, 
first cav, three core, and all the other units that are there. And it got to the point, my third child was born in August and I was in trial every other week and sometimes back to back weeks from August till December. And I remember probably the most insensitive time I've been as a husband, I think it was around Thanksgiving and my wife shows me our holiday cards and it's just the three kids. And without thinking, I look at her and I go, why aren't you in the picture? Not why aren't we in the picture, mind you. Why aren't you in the picture? And she looks at me and gets a little choked up and she goes, Joe, that would make me feel like a single mom. And that hits a little too close to home right now. And I was like, oh my. And she was 100% right, but she supported me and I went through a crucible that really helped me grow as a litigator and a trial attorney. And it, it was the best professional six, seven months of my life. And so coming out of that, the Fort Hood shooter was pending trial. One of his defense counsel was getting out of the army and I had been going to his lead defense counsel, Chris Poppy who is one of the finest attorneys I've ever met, probably the best defense attorney the army's ever seen. And he had become a mentor towards me through my time at Fort Hood and especially through that crucible. And he said, Hey Joe, I've got a spot open and I'd really like you to, to join the team. And that's a big thing to wrap your mind around both exposing the family to that. Is there blowback for being a defense counsel on that type of case? My wife, I ultimately said yes. And we live in Georgetown, Texas, small community. And yeah, people were more than willing to share their opinions with what I was doing with my wife. And they would never tell me they disapproved, but they would tell her that they disapproved. But it, it was one of those things. And it goes back to what I said earlier, it's what's right. and What's right is we have a constitution, we have all these protections in place. And when I was a prosecutor, I, I thought I was a very thoughtful prosecutor. I would, and I would make sure I was prepared. I would have all the evidence available. I didn't play any games. When I preferred charges, as you bring the soldier in, the company commander reads the charges, he gets served with the paperwork against him. I'd go over to the defense office and hand them all the evidence. I said, Hey, the pretrial hearing is on this date. If you need a continuance, I will agree to it. Just let me know. This is my current offer. If you have more information that I don't have, give it to me and, and we can see what we can figure out. Otherwise I'm ready for trial and we can get more into it. But the standing up, not for what he did not for the crime he committed, but standing up and saying, Hey, I'm going to make sure this constitution means something. I'm going to make sure what I served for means something. That was ultimately what caused me to accept the offer. It reminds me of the discussion we had earlier and the roles and responsibilities that a commander have sometimes puts them at the odds of the individual in lieu of what is best for the larger organization and what the organization's mission is and how you focus this. That's okay. And I understand that, but I own this. This is my responsibility to take care of this soldier. Uh, yeah. and I hear that in what you talked about in that discussion there is if we have an adversarial system on purpose to make sure that we, we to find the truth, you have to have two sides fighting very hard. Uh, from their perspective to make sure that they find the truth in between those two perspectives. I think that's exactly right. Talk me through how that, that experience changed you. I don't necessarily need, we don't need the play-by-play -play of what that experience was like. How did that change you going through that system and working with that mentor? Yeah. At the end of the day, it, it's an incredible experience. It's. As the, my mentor said, Joe, big 
cases change people. And I, and I certainly saw that there was definitely, I, I felt a shift in how I was viewed even in military circles. And, but at the same time, without really getting into the weeds on it, I, I always thought it was such an exercise in futility. There was no chance, or I think there's virtually no chance that he's going to be executed. And so it was a death penalty case that brings all this additional things to bear on it. Obviously hundreds of people, if not thousands of people forever impacted by his actions and all of the delays in the case. And I got to know some of the victims personally and feeling their pain. It's just a, a surreal experience because on one hand, you're, you need to master the defense craft for a death penalty case. And I got to go to extra training and do some amazing things. On the other hand, you're dealing with this horrific event. And I remember I, I sitting in a living room in Chicago, talking with a private's mother and just trying to keep myself together, listening to how this event has impacted her life from a compassion standpoint, from a big picture standpoint, from a legal proficiency standpoint, it just changed my life in, in, in ways I probably don't even appreciate. That transition point after completing your time at Fort Hood, what was that like for you and where did, what did you do, do next? So it was, it was, so historically people that do the funded legal education program do the program and you either stay in. And I was naive when I did it. I thought, oh, they want me to come into the JAG court to be an attorney. It turns out they don't want more attorneys in the JAG court. And I think the whole purpose of the FLEP program is to bring leaders into the JAG court. And that was my being naive and probably the theme of making things harder than myself. I was like, no, I would like to stay a, a litigator because I'm good at it. And they're like, no, we would really like you to be a manager. I was like, yeah, I did that. And it, that was a time in my life, but I've moved past that. And they're like, we're glad you think so, Joe. And so I made the decision to get out. I had a mentor in the criminal defense clinic at UT and she was looking at doing some lobbying work and maybe transitioning out of private practice. And so I made the very scary jump from being in the army at 18 until I had 13 and a half years in. And then I went into private practice, basically working for her and then running her practice for a couple of years. Now, did you continue on serving in another method? with the army or did, would you go cold turkey from active to civilian war? So I, I joined the reserves for no other reason than the $200 life insurance for the family of six that I had at that point and probably best decision I made. So I did some defense work that I did three years at the appellate defense appellate division, helping soldiers appeal their court martial results. And then ultimately. Got selected in the reserves as a military judge. Wow. One lane you're doing appellate representation and ultimately becoming a judge. And then in your private practice, what were you doing? So private practice, it's funny. You, I thought I was going to come out and be the great court martial litigator and file over the, the world doing that. And I stepped into a busy private practice doing uh, state criminal defense in Texas, federal criminal defense. And then my mentor was probably at the time, the best juvenile attorney in central Texas, if not in Texas. So I ended up learning some juvenile law and the transition was just amazing in terms of how different everything is. The military is very formal. There's uh, a book that basically has a script for every court martial, when things are going to happen, what are you going to do? 
I remember getting ready for my first hearing in the civilian world and there's not a script, but there's a statute and it lays out what needs to happen at the hearing. And so the, the day before the hearing we're meeting and I said, okay, they're going to do this. I'm going to do this. They're going to do this. And the judge is going to do this, right? Cause that's what the statute says. And my mentor, she just starts laughing. I said, what's funny. And she goes, Joe, that's not what's going to happen. And she goes, this is what's going to happen. She's like, going to go in, the probation officer is going to talk to the judge. The judge may ask some questions. He may or may not let the uh, prosecutor say something. And then he'll let you put his input in and he's going to do whatever the probation officer says. I said, but that's not what's in the law, Patricia. And she goes, Joe, that's what's going to happen. And so you, you quickly realize in the civilian world, there is a time and a place for advocacy. There's a time and a place for the rules. Uh, but so much of my private criminal practice, definitely on the state side, was about my relationships with judges, prosecutors, probation people, law enforcement people, my reputation when I finally rarely got to go to trial. And I think people found out I knew what I was doing in trial. So that gave me a little bit more street cred, uh, but just, it couldn't have been more different than my practice in the military. What has that experience been like as, as having, being able to see law from so many different perspectives, from the military side, from the civilian side, from the prosecute prosecutorial side to the defense side and even sitting as the judge listening and to managing those cases what has been the biggest things that you've learned yeah the worst thing that happened to me in private practice was when i became a judge on the military side because the nice thing about being the judge is you call balls and strikes and you do what you think is right and so when I'm a, when I'm a practitioner, whether it was when I was a prosecutor or a defense attorney, I'm relying on a judge to do what I think is right. And when you become the judge, it's an awesome kind of, I don't want this to sound trite, but it's humbling in terms of when you're back in chambers and you're deliberating on whether somebody's guilty or what sentence you're going to impose on somebody. But ultimately I just go back to, okay. What does the law allow for and what's right in this case? And it was so frustrating. So I, I get passionate about my clients and I get passionate about what I think is right as a defense attorney. And when a judge disagrees with me for whatever reason, it became extra kind of soul crushing, I think, after I became a military judge in 2019. And so that made, that made private practice harder to gear up for. Whereas I've loved my, the great thing about the reserve military judge job is we don't do reserve stuff. We supplement active duty court marshals. Once a month, I'm going up to Fort Cavazos or Fort Sam and either doing a guilty plea or a contested case with active duty counsel active duty jury members uh, on something that an active duty judge could handle. And so it's a really unique and special opportunity. As we wrap up your experience at West Point, how has it shaped who you are today and what you don't? So I, I always really enjoyed, and so I'm still wearing the uniform right before this, I was getting ready for my ACFT that's coming up. I, I'm not, I, I won't miss uh, those days when I finally hang up the uniform, but God, I love to serve and I love being around soldiers. And I was really fortunate about seven, eight months ago, I got hired to work for the social security administration as an administrative law judge. And it's there's 1,200 administrative law judges in Social Security, and for most of America, those administrative law judges are really going to be their only interaction with the judiciary. And we're talking about last level of defense 
benefits to a person that doesn't have the ability to work? Do they qualify for benefits so they can have a standard of living that we think people in this country should have? And it's been such a rewarding transition from private practice because I'm back now, not just in the military, but in my civilian capacity, I'm serving the nation again. I've got a duty to go through this file and conduct the hearing and, you know, see if this person is truly disabled. Is it right to give this person benefits? And I've got a duty to that person to make the right decision. And I've got a duty to you as a taxpayer to make the right decision there. And I, I feel like I've come full circle because I did feel in my private practice, I, I was missing that service to the nation component. And I feel like I'm back doing that on two fronts now. And, and it's felt really good. As we wrap up, do you have any comments to the class? I got to tell you, Joe, I love the podcast. I've listened to a lot of episodes. I love listening everybody's successes and just everybody's experience to all the classmates that helped get me here. I appreciate you. And I do look forward to at some point seeing everybody back at West Point and sharing some stories and having a good time and reconnecting. Joe, again, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing that path from armor officer to JAG to reserve judge to now judge with, with Social Security Administration. Just a crazy cool path. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate all you do. Till duty is done. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.